A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi everybody, welcome to Dan Snow's History. I've just got out of the car. I've parked up because I'm coming to a very special party. It's the 100th birthday party of Betty Webb. She was born on the 13th of May, 1923. Now, Betty is a national treasure. She has deservedly become very famous in recent decades. In fact, so famous that she was invited to King Charles III's coronation because she is one of the last surviving code breakers from Bletchley Park. She served during the Second World War at Bletchley and then because she was so talented in Washington DC for the remainder of the war against Japan in 1945. She worked on intercepted German and Japanese messages at Bletchley. She had joined as a teenager against her mother's wishes. She ran away from school, as you'll hear, deliberately to join up because she wanted to do more to contribute to the fight against fascism than just make sausage rolls and serve cups of warm tea. She's been decorated by the British and French governments for her wartime service. She is having a magnificent 100th birthday party thrown for her today, and I'm very privileged indeed to have been invited and to mark this very special centenarian. This is an episode of the podcast that I recorded three or four years ago when I went to visit her house in Birmingham. She sat me down, she gave me a slice of cake the size of an anchor, and she told me all about her childhood, wartime experiences, and what it was like working at Bletchley Park. Enjoy. Never to go to war with one another again. And liftoff, and the shuttle has cleared the tower. Let's talk about your childhood, because it's quite a long time ago now, and it's a bit different to how children might be brought up these days. Oh, absolutely. I, I was brought up in the country. I'm a Salopian, actually, and we lived in um, Richard's Castle, which is on the borders of Herefordshire and Shropshire. In the days when one didn't have telephones, and uh, I never went to school. My mother ta- taught me all I know. And uh, apart from a few months in Germany in 1937, yes, I, I spent three months with a family in a little village called Herrnhutensachsen near Dresden. That was um, 37, yes, yes. When uh, the Hitler regime was just beginning to boil up, and the family with whom I was living, very religious people, and they were obviously very anxious about it all. But their two daughters, aged, I think, about 11 and 12, had to attend the um, Hitler thing called the Bede and Mädels, which was a Hitler regime gathering every Sunday morning. But they never told us what, what they were doing there, but they were obviously being indoctrinated, I think. So that was remarkable that you also witnessed life in Nazi Germany at uh, just before the war. So you mentioned these girls were 
going away and becoming indoctrinated. What else do you remember from that time in Germany? Well, I remember going to school with the um, daughters of the house. My German wasn't absolutely brilliant, but I, I was able to understand quite a lot. But the thing that bothered me was um, the practice was becoming uh, usual for everybody to stand up and say Heil Hitler, the beginning of a lesson at the end. So I, <laughs> I didn't quite know what to do, but I just sort of went like that and hope nobody swore. Looks like a royal wave. And why did you even at, so you were only, you're only sort of 15 or so at that stage, but why, why did you even at that age think, I, I don't want to be part of what Hitler's got going on here? Well, uh, there was a certain amount of discussion in the household where I was, you know, they were obviously very worried about what was happening and not knowing the whole story, but I was aware of food rationing and that sort of thing. They were beginning to uh, to get really worried about what was going to happen. And this rather secretive thing for the, the young girls to go to every Sunday morning, we never heard what they did or what they were told about or anything like that. It was all very secretive. Did you ever find out that family survived the war? No, I didn't. No. Um, sadly, things moved on and I never got in touch with them again. And so you grew up without... Telephones, televisions, what other, what other mod cons did you grow up without? Oh, well, we, we had a, a radio, but it was a crystal set to begin with. <laughs> and then it became a wireless before it was a radio. And so it was a, and, and what do you remember from that child? I mean, you did lessons with your mother and then the rest of the time, what were you up to? Well, we, we were very fortunate in that we had a, a large area in the country and we had animals and uh, I had to help with those, of course. And when um, <clears throat> the weather was fine, we didn't do lessons. We went for, for walks in the countryside. But we no, we did work then because we, we picked flowers and then we were obliged to come home and draw them and give a description of each flower. I remember that very clearly. And I also remember the fact that um, if you needed to communicate with anyone, you walked and we were some distance from any other dwelling. So it was fairly primitive in a way. We didn't have any water that had to be pumped up and no electricity, had oil lamps and candles. So it's, I mean, it seems like a, really a different world to the one that we're living in now. Absolutely different, yes. People can't envisage it, I think. Perhaps even you can't, I don't know. But then I decided that um, when I got a bit older that I, I wanted to do domestic science. So I went to uh, Shrewsbury, who was a college there at that time. This was um, the beginning of the war. But um, as the war uh, rolled on, a lot of us felt that we were wasting our time making sausage rolls. So, um, well, I remember four of us leaving in midterm, which was a bit naughty. But anyway, that's how I came to be in the eight years. And and what were the opportunities for young women in the, the Second World War? Because I think lots of people listening to this will think, well, the men all went off to fight and the women could take their place in factories and as bus conductors. There were, there were opportunities to serve. What were they? What were they? Well, they were the ATS, the Auxiliary Territorial Service, the RINs and the, and the WAFs. So um, there was plenty, plenty of choice, providing um, you were physically fit and mentally able. And what did you end up doing in the ATS? Well, I did my training, in, basic training in the ATS at Wrexham, Woolworths Fusilier Unit. And then I was um, sent to London to be interviewed by an intelligence corps officer in German, because I'd said at the time that I was um, bilingual. And the next thing I know, I'm on a train for 
Bletchley, never having heard of Bletchley, or certainly didn't know what was going on there. And that's how I came to, to be there, un, rather unceremoniously, really. Can I ask just quickly, I've talked to some other women from the, from this period who said that their parents were a little bit worried about sending them off to join in the war effort. How did your family respond to you bunking out of college and, and joining joining up? Yes, I think my mother was a little bit worried because she said, um, you know, dear, if you ever want to come out, just tell them. She recently had a, an operation for cancer, which, of course, in those days was not very sophisticated as it is today. And she said, I can always get the doctor to sign something and you can come home. But it was a very exciting for you. Did you ever regret your decision? No, no, I didn't. No, in fact, I think uh, I probably grew up in Bletchley. And certainly it was a tremendous experience from the point of view of mixing with all walks of life. So you get to Bletchley Station and you thought, and what did you think? Where, where is this godforsaken place? It's dark, I couldn't see anything anyway. And we were taken straight to a billet in um, uh, one of the uh, ra- railway towns. I was with a girl actually who'd uh, escaped from Belgium. She joined up, joined the eight years, and she and I piled up on the train as it happened. And we were then <clears throat> taken to this billet in um, Bradwell and uh, finding that we not only had to share a room, but we had to share a bed, which was a bit of a shock to both of us. And the um, facilities were very primitive indeed. And so the following day I asked if I could be moved, but I went from the frying pan into the fire to another rather indifferent dwelling with uh, four members of the family, three of us, and there was no bathroom. It's lucky you had such a hardy upbringing. Absolutely, yes, yes. Oh, yes. I mean, that didn't matter so much, but uh, uh, my next move was to a lovely house in um, Loughton, which is now part of Milton Keynes, where the family of uh, five and three of us, I mentioned the numbers because with ration books, that was jolly good. It meant that we... We ate very well, and they also had a very good garden and um, had lots of fruit trees and so on. So, so we were compared with what a lot of people had to live on in those days. We were very well fed. And so, tell me about Bletchley. I mean, that secrecy was so important. So, quite rapidly, they must have sort of had to had to get the paperwork done, make sure you weren't going to tell anyone, and, and to make it clear that this was a sort of totally, totally top-secret operation, ultra-secret operation. Absolutely, yes. Well, the first morning, uh, having been bussed into Bletchley, I was taken into the little office on the left of the entrance and faced with, I think it was an intelligence corps officer with a gun on the table and the Official Secrets Act there for me to read, which, of course, my age and experience was fairly formidable. But um, there were no two ways about it. I mean, you you signed it and that was that until the... uh, 60 years passed and I remember saying to myself well Betty you have no option you just do it did, did, was this the beginning of a glimpse you thought actually this might be something rather exciting were you, were you, not, were you not a bit nervous that you might have yeah I was quite nervous about uh, the fact that I did have to keep everything to myself because I didn't know what I was going to see or hear anyway but um, having told myself very strictly that that's what has to be it was so once they'd got the paperwork out of the way, they'd given you a bit of a scare. What then? Well, then I was taken into Major Tester's office, which in those days was upstairs. I don't know the... Well, it doesn't matter really. It's upstairs above the ballroom. There were three little rooms up there. I think they were servants' quarters originally. And my first task was to register all the messages that were coming in at quite a rate, something in the region of 
I, I didn't handle 10,000, but that's how many there were in the height of activities to be registered before the um, code breakers could handle them. So that was your job, was was the top of the funnel, was it? Which was checking, sort of getting all the messages in and That's then... right, and, and uh, registering them in not very detailed way because apart from the date and a, a little um, call sign, everything was in groups of five letters or figures, which was totally uh, unintelligible. Was it exciting work or a bit boring? No, it was, it was boring, really. <laughs> <laughs> and, and what date was, what point of the war was this? This was 1941. Right. Yes. So, From, so the war was going, were you aware the war was going badly? Was, were you nervous about that or did you not really see the big picture? Well, we t- weren't told very much. I mean, the uh, public knowledge was very limited. I mean, sometimes you'd hear one of our planes is missing or something like that, but it wasn't detailed. Um, the only thing we did did know was whether or not we could spend our off days in London and we'd be told whether or not it was safe to go. But apart from that, we, we knew very little. And Bletchley wasn't bombed, as you probably know, but a, a bomb dropped between the church and the mansion, but it was a jettisoned bomb. But we were never actually attacked. So the the, jo- the work was a bit boring initially. It was, uh, yes, it, it was boring because you didn't know what was going to happen to it next. And... and uh, because we couldn't say anything outside our own offices, we didn't get to know the rest of the story. Did you guess that it was German codes? Well, I think we were told that it was, although it's only very recently, uh, a couple of years ago, when uh, Mick Smith told me that I'd been handling Holocaust material, but I didn't know at the time. You listen to Dan Snow's History. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about Wix. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hi there, everyone. I want to tell you about a podcast that I think you'll like. It's called Mysteries at the Museum from Travel Channel. It's narrated by my good friend and host of American History hit, Don Wildman. On Mysteries at the Museum, Don travels across the US to find objects that tell shocking stories of American history. You'll hear about the portrait linked to the first bank robbery in American history and about the failed invention from World War II that became one of the most popular toys for kids uncover the secrets behind these incredible objects and learn about the history of war, science, crime, and everything in between. You're going to love this podcast all about the remarkable objects in our treasure houses that are museums. Please go and check it out. Mysteries at the Museum from Travel Channel. 
And talk to me about the famous social life at Bletchley. What was that like? Oh, it was pretty good. <laughs> well, we had, well, actually, Mark will tell you about that. He's got a splendid book about the drama group, which um, put on a play fairly, fairly often. Goodness knows how they did it with the shift system that we had. But anyway, yes, we had drama groups. We had a Bach choir run by Herbert Murrell, who was a professional musician. And then we had a magical society, which I enjoyed, and a gramophone group. We also had lectures from various people. I don't know who they were now, but uh, we did. So all in all, yes, it was a balanced life. But it was quite hard work, especially if you were on the three-shift system, which was um, eight to four, four to midnight, and midnight to eight, which um, is all very well, except the uh, one during the night isn't very good because you have to have a meal and one system doesn't like that in the middle of the night. And so Bletchley Park, the giant code-breaking exercise, did it was 24 hours a day? Yes, yes, it was. Oh, yes, it had to be. And was there, was there romance between all the various people there? No, there was a little, but bear in mind that the, uh, we outnumbered the men three to one, so there wasn't much scope for it. <laughs> there were some romances, though, some famous ones. We were talking about them earlier. What's her name? It's gone for the minute, but uh, quite well-known people who uh, met in the uh, when they were breaking codes. At the Magical Society meetings? Magical society, yes, that's right. That's yeah. where the magic happened. <laughs> um, and, and did you did you then move on to other other jobs within Bletchley? Yes, I did actually. Yes, Bear, bearing in mind I was very junior, I had um, a job in Hartford one time, which was a naval one, I think. And um, the uh, gentleman I was working for had a, only a very really primitive way of writing things down, and he. Um, wanted me to sort it out and type out what he'd written, which was fine, except that he wrote from the top to the bottom, as most sensible people do, and then he'd turn the paper around, and I never knew <laughs> where to sort of hang on to things. It was quite extraordinary. <laughs> I remember that very clearly. Did they move you around because there was a danger that you'd sort of get bored and sloppy in one position, or, or did they move you around because you were very good and they kept promoting you? Well, I don't really know why I was uh, moved around and or why I was promoted, but I ended up in the Japanese section, um, um, Block F, which no longer exists, and somebody discovered that I was good at um, paraphrasing decoded Japanese messages. So I did that for quite a long time until 1945, and then I was told that I was to go to the Pentagon and carry on with my paraphrasing, which I did. So at that stage, you're looking at unencrypted, you're looking at codes as they would have originally appeared to the Japanese operators. So you, you did you have a sense that, did that connect you with a distant battlefield? Was that a strange feeling? In a, in a way, but of course, um, a lot of the names that came up, uh, this is after they'd been uh, decoded and translated. The um, battle area between Burma and India, places like Kohima, Maigtila, um, what was the other famous one? But anyway, all that... Uh, borderline between the two countries that came up quite a bit and um, as I say it was my job to to paraphrase and so when we hoped that when these messages went on to the commanders in the field if the Japs had picked it up they wouldn't realize that we'd actually decoded their messages. Okay so you're saying paraphrase do, do you mean you're almost sort of rewriting them? Rewriting that's right yes yes I, I do have an example here somewhere oh, yes. might be helpful. 
It's not a very long one. I mean, most most of them are very long. Um, the example: border areas near Kohima and Imphal expected to be attacked Monday becomes early next week. Attacks could be further west, maybe Kohima area. Really? Yes. So you... See, that's a very, very short one. So you would, you'd, you would look at a, 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 a message from a Japanese, Japanese field commander. It said, right, we're moving, we're going to go and attack the Imphal and Kohima. Yeah. And you would set your decision as, as to what you wrote and sort of make it all subtle and suggestive. And that's a, that's a very serious job. It was, yes. And I did that in the Pentagon as well. Only a short time, of course, because this was... Um, I went out after the war in Europe and finished. Uh, and, uh, of course, the bomb, the atomic bombs dropped in August, August the 9th, I think. And uh, so that was it. That's all I had to do then. So, so why exactly do you have to paraphrase? Why can't you just send commanders in the field exactly what their Japanese opponent has, has written down and sent back to Tokyo? Uh, well, yeah, well, the point of that was because... Uh, we didn't want the Japs to know that we'd actually broken their codes. So if your message fell into the wrong hands, it would look like British intelligence sort of speculating? I guess so. But of course, again, being very junior, and I was never uh, given the full story, I was never able to follow it through. Did any of those messages that came across your desk at that late stage of the war give you real pause for thought and think, oh, there are there are men and people out there on those battlefields in the most... Terrible conditions. Did, did any of those messages really arrest you? Well, no, because we didn't know very much about it. There wasn't, there were not news reports in the way that we have them today. We had very, very little information, certainly at my level. How did the male officers, the, the, the senior male staff, how did they treat you women? Did they look on you as equals or was there a... Yes, a, a tremendous esprit de corps. It was, it was very good. Very good indeed. I don't remember any uh, ill feeling between the men and the women. We all worked together very amicably. And at the end, towards the end of the war, being sent to the Pentagon, I mean, that must have been an extraordinary that order to receive. That was something else, especially as uh, there'd been a mix-up in the movement order. I should have gone on, on a ship and the uh, officer in Radnor Place, which was the... Uh, area where you were sent here, there or everywhere, she'd gone on leave and hadn't opened the movement instruction for me. So I missed the boat and I rang my boss in um, Block F and said, I'm still here, sitting here. So he sent me back to the war office and um, they organised for me to go on a flying boat from uh, Pool Harbour, which... Uh, went to Ireland and then to Newfoundland and then down to Baltimore. Took 22 hours to get there. Uh, how old were you at that stage? Oh, gosh, well, I was born in 23. This was 41. I was 18, 19. So d did you feel that you and your female colleagues were advancing the cause of women? Did you, was there anything like that going on in your head or, or did you just did, you just felt there was a job to do? And Well, that's right. I think we, we accepted it because there was a war on and this is what we, we had to do. Was there a pride perhaps that women could do jobs that previously that had been sort of reserved for male in, intelligence officers? I'm sorry, that's a subject I really don't know anything about because, you see, I was only uh, growing up in, in, the, in the country and then joining up when I was... I've just lost track of how old I was. <laughs>
Yes, I no, I was too too young and inexperienced to know anything about the rest of the employment situation. And then when war, where, where were you when the war ended? VJ Day, where were you? VJ Day, I was in Washington, and that was noisy. And the dropping of the atomic bomb, of course, came as a, a total shock to you. Did you learn about it through your work, or did you just hear about it on the wireless? No, I heard about it through an office in... Um, I'd moved from the Pentagon after my job was over, and I went into the British Army... No, the British Joint Services Mission Office near the White House... I was with one of the staff who was Commander Denison's daughter and uh, she said, she told me that it was about to happen rather secretly. I did know it was going to happen. So you knew before the bomb was dropped, you knew it was going to happen? I did actually, yes. And then did you, when when Japan surrendered, did, did you all pile out onto the mall? Yes, indeed, and the uh, residents of Washington fixed their car horns for 24 hours. You have never heard such a cacophony in all your life. And then we all went out and clung to the railings of the White House, shouting, we want Harry, Harry as Truman. <laughs> Absolutely crazy. And the other interesting thing was that, well, uh, there wasn't much food rationing. There was a certain amount of meat rationing and... Um, Suddenly, it all, the meat appeared. We think it had been saved up for the end of the war. You, you t- talking about it now? It looks all, all, you have clearly some fond memories. I mean, did you enjoy your wartime service? Oh yes, I did very much because uh, having been tucked away in the country for so many years and not meeting an awful lot of people, it was a real joy for me meeting different people and uh, interacting with them. I, I really enjoyed it. Did, did you lose, I mean, did you think about those in your generation, men, women, civilians, who been, had different experiences and suffered on the battlefield or on, on the home front? I mean, did you have friends and cousins and, in your wider network? Yes, indeed. I mean, most most of my family at, at age, they were, they were in one of the services or others, and quite a, we have quite a few regular army officers in the family. So, yes, sorry, I've lost... No, so, so you, and, and did they all come back unscathed? Yes, they did. Uh, yeah, they did, yes. It was the First World War ones who didn't come back unscathed. No, the Second World War, they did, fortunately, yes. I just while well, I've got you, you mentioned the First World War. Did, did you, do you remember people uh, in the 1920s, from your younger days, do you remember the First World War veterans particularly? Well, I remember two uncles of mine, and one of them was at Gallipoli and had nightmares forever. Yes, I remember that very clearly. Mm. And after the war, what, what, how did your life go differently to how it might have done had you stayed up there in, uh, in Shropshire? Um, well, I would be, become a cabbage, I think. <laughs> but um, no, it, it sounds awful to say this, but the war was good for me because it, it made me uh, interact with other people much more, which I wouldn't have done otherwise. And um, yes, and I, I found being out in the world very interesting and I stayed out in the world. You stayed working after the war? Yes, I did. Well, I went home for a bit, as we all did, I think. Because I had to wait until February 46 before the mob group came up and then I went home for a while. And the big difficulty was then prospective interviewers couldn't understand why you couldn't tell them what you were doing. Now, a lot of people have felt this, especially men. Because, you know, you weren't able to say and people didn't understand. 
Was it a bit of an anticlimax? I mean, you'd been in Washington, D.C., you heard about nuclear bombs getting dropped, you'd stood on the, on the railings of the White House, and suddenly suddenly you're back looking for, looking for a job? A bit tame, yes. <laughs> but I was lucky because the... Um, so I went back to Richard's Castle, which was near Ludlow, and the um, head of Ludlow Grammar School was also a former Bletchley person. So we just looked at each other, said nothing, and he gave me a job. <laughs> Yes, people can't understand that, but we didn't, uh, we never discussed it between, you know, I remember bumping into uh, my um, Block F boss, uh, who was a civilian actually, but uh, I was in Cheltenham for some reason and I spotted him in a, a restaurant and he just uh, he just nodded. He said, I thought it was you. And that was it. You see, the secrecy was still very much with us. What was it like finally being able to talk about it in the 1970s? Yes, it was very strange. I was working in Birmingham at that time and out at lunchtime and there was uh, another Bletchley person across the road. I didn't know her name. I just knew her by sight. And she said, it's out. I said, what's out? She said, we can talk. I said, oh, bye. And, you know, I didn't. I didn't want to. It was years before I actually opened up. It wasn't until somebody suggested that I should give talks uh, that I realised that um, I must dig into my memory and uh, start talking, which I did, and I've been giving talks ever since. And you've, you've met royalty and, and been decorated for those talks. Well, no, the um, yes, I've met most of the royalty, actually, but that's another story. The uh, citation when I had my MBE simply said, for remembering and furthering the work of Bletchley Park, which is what I do all the time now. I always keep leaflets in my handbag. And you always go back to the reunions, don't you? I always go back to reunions and many other times when I'm free to do so. Take people down and... Yes. They can take me down one day, I'd love that. OK, will do. <laughs> thank you very much indeed. Well, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.